の中のものは唐突に変わる時がある男も女も大人も子供もお父さんだって2回変わった人がいる Hello and welcome back to 10TB ただ変わらないと思っていたものも変わってしまう前に終わっているだけかもしれない私は変わってしまうのだろうか変わっていけるのだろうかこれは考えたところでわからないのが分かった世の中のものは必ず終わっていく人の気持ちも終わっていく中学の友達も終わっていくしかし新たな環境は This is from that letterboxed. Tokyo school, schoolgirl Hiromi and her friends engage in a practice known as Enjo Kosai, or compensated dating, where older men pay young girls for dates. Hiromi plunges deeper into this world to raise money for an expensive ring.、Um, yeah, that is exactly what happens in this movie.、Um, you know, it's not a complicated plot. It's, the thing that's complicated about it is the execution of it, which is one of the most visually. Enticing, aggressive films I have potentially ever seen. <laughs> And it, I mean, I'll come straight out off the top here. Rocked my world watching this film.、Um, you are more of an Arno head than me. Where、mm. does this fit for you in the Arno filmography? Good question.、Um... So, again, just to give the listeners a little bit of context, it comes immediately off the back, almost immediately off the back of、um, End of Evangelion, which is his animated, which is his animated work, work of anime that concludes and presents an alternative ending to the work that he's you know, far and away best known for,、um, Evangelion. Um, and it's his first foray into、uh, live action.、Um, so, yeah, it, that's, that's quite an interesting lens with which to look at the film. 
um, because as the uh, Anno heads <laughs> will attest to um, in our listener base, um, his filmography is very connected. You know, um, the auteur theory is, is applicable because, you know, he recycles shots, recycles themes. Uh, you'll always get, um, typically his milieu is, is young people, uh, mm. as is the case here with the with the teenage girls, same as Evangelion, um, and they tend to, well, they always do rather, um, spout the kind of existential, uh, depressive uh, monologues of Anno himself. You know, they all all of the characters essentially in mm. an Anno film, especially the lead POV characters. In this case, it's uh, Hiromi in uh, Evangelion at Shinji. Um, function basically as a, a cipher or an avatar for, for Anno himself mm. um, and you get a lot of that in this film with the uh, with the with the monologuing the narration um, which which is it, I like it in Love and Pop it kind of charts a certain course at the beginning uh, well there's a nice arc to it rather she's at the beginning she's very confused uh, almost jealous of the way that her child well her childhood is kind of passing her by she, mm. she's very acutely aware of the fact that Childhood and her teenage years are going to be the best years of her life, but um, she doesn't really have a purpose in life, um, doesn't find much meaning in terms of her family life or, mm. or anything, and it gets very jealous of what her friends are doing and stuff like that, uh, which, you know, completely, you can just imagine Arno having those same thoughts himself mm. if you spent any time, you know, getting to know him through through his work and through through various interviews and things like that. Um, so Love and Pop basically continues that that trend um, from Evangelion um, and what I think is really radical about uh, Love and Pop um, because even though it's radical especially in the animation um, genre or context as well because I suppose animation or Japanese anime is not typically that dense or existential or thematically um rich and 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 you know fl- straight straight up depressing mm. uh, but the switch to the switch to live action i feel like it's even more profound in a way because a typical kind of teen girl movie which is the milieu of love and pop especially one with the title love and pop mm. the expectation is that you uh get something a bit frivolous a bit fun mm. um, and through these kind of like inch you know intensely introspective monologues um, that that you get through the film and, and as Hiromi is narrating her adventure um, or her journey through the film like there's this there's this deep relatability about it uh, and you're really kind of like forced into her perspective mm. and a lot of her kind of insights and the revelations that she espouses through the film are uh, deeply troubling uh, and are very much a reflection of Anno's mindset which has always been you know with, I don't want to be crude about a sensitive topic but he's he's a guy that if you know him it's it, you know you'll know this already he's always been a manic depressive he's always been on the verge of kind of some right. kind of suicide and it's it's almost a miracle that he's still alive and love and pop has moments of euphoria and joy that I'm sure we'll get onto Joe but I think that really comes through and it's really pronounced when you see it in a live action context especially with the setting being you know young high school girls just having fun yeah. ostensibly and and I'll let we'll get on to some of the darker things that we see throughout the course of this film but yeah it's it's quite striking to to hear especially some of 
her uh, monologues around what she's gone through. His 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 default narrative mode tends to be, I'm going to force you into the mindset of this character. You won't like what is revealed. You won't mm. like what they have to say. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be deeply unsettling. Mm. And in Love and Pop, it finds its kind of its most unsettling form because it the, of how unexpected it is that it's coming from. You know the the mind and the mouth of a, of a young teenage girl right but i wanted to ask you joe because because you're not an arno head no how did you kind of find that narrative model or that narrative mode whereby that anno is trying to like force you to be inside their head through that kind of obviously we can talk about the formalism and the style but that in that deep introspective almost stream of consciousness kind of depressing um narration that, mm. that he utilizes well I, that's the interesting thing is that i think that that sort of internal narration blends kind of with the dialogue so i feel like most of these characters are all kind of of you know a similar um mentality now some people would say that that's lazy writing but to me i think that that's quite interesting to be honest to create this sort of like tapestry of characters they're all linked through their thoughts and feelings and i really you know appreciated that and to be able to craft a story like that with characters of such a similar you know mental milieu um is incredibly impressive um the other thing that you mentioned as well is the idea of time so the fact that hiromi is like aware of her limited time you know, she is aware that there is an expectation on women in Japan that is very different to that of men. You know, it's the expectation that, you know, actually a few years after this film has maybe started to go away a bit more, which is why Japan's got the issue of their population is aging because, you know, people aren't having kids at the same rate that they used to. But, you know, the expectation is traditionally is that the woman will run the household. You know, they will take the husband's wage and then give him an allowance, you know, and mm. that that is yeah. quite common. And, you know, I, I was in Japan earlier this year and talking to people that live there, you know, uh, English people that live out in, in Japan and talking about that cultural change, which is so stark to somewhere like the UK or Europe or wherever, where women have such a controlling aspect of it. And she knows that her time's limited because she probably will have to take control of someone's life. And her three friends have got very clear, distinct desires, wants, needs, and she doesn't have any of them. And she finds this r- ring mm. in the shop, and that is her want and need for her teenage years, for when she goes off on holiday with her friends to the beach before they come back to school for their very strict school years. Because, you know, this is their last chance of having fun. And she's like, well, how can I have yeah. fun? I want this ring. How do I get this ring? I need money. My friends are doing this to get money. These sort of play dates with men because they yeah. because they missed out on something, or maybe they want to recapture something of having fun with teenage girls. And you know that idea of time is so interesting because for me, the first hour is incredibly fluid. There's no set idea of time. Yeah. You know, they kind of jump around in time, and then she gets the money for the ring because they go on this karaoke date with the guy they're like take it we want you to do it and she's like i haven't earned this i can't take this now because now this ring is tainted i haven't earned it and then it's like right i'm going to get it by the end of today and then the time limit is set you know the escape from new york ticking time bomb of the shop closes at nine o'clock and you have to get the money by nine o'clock and if you get the money by nine o'clock 
then you're going to have nailed it, you're going to have a great childhood, you're going to have a great teenage years, and it's going to be perfect. But she finds, obviously, that the route to that is treacherous. I mean, we... I mentioned it briefly there, but the first play date that her and her friends go on with that guy for karaoke is, like... It's so sad. <laughs> so tragic. Like, it's so <laughs> tragic. I mean, obviously, it's easy for us to look at something in Japanese culture, point, yeah. laugh, feel sad for it, but there it's kind of this obvious transaction, and it feels like she was in that nice one because of her friends, and then there's only two afterwards, isn't it, that she goes on that are, like, mm. really upsetting and horrific, and, yeah. horrific. and it's yeah. like, oh... Because this is more the reality of it. If you're by yourself yeah. as a young woman, this is the reality of what you're going to face. Um, I, I think I think you picked up on something nice there, Joe, which is the way that there is a deep identification. Not only is what I was talking about in terms of with the with the protagonist, specifically Hiromi, who in the second part of the film becomes the exclusive um, sole kind of POV character, um, but the way that. There is this kind of sympathy and empathetic portrayal of the of the guys who are kind mm. of paying them as well, who are, who are indulging in the less savory. Well, neither side is savory, but you know the they're the they're the kind of instigators of this Enjo Kosai lifestyle because they're approaching these young girls on the street and they're saying, yeah, for fifty thousand yen, you know, come on, come and have a, a meal with me or do karaoke with me. And even though it's problematic and uncomfortable more specifically um the film is is really good at kind of put even in the more uncomfortable moments which i guess we'll get onto um with the last two gentlemen that you mentioned there is still a humanism that i think is quite quite unusual for anna especially because a lot of the criticism against things like evangelion is that he's so in set on kind of imposing himself and using himself with and then you know, his characters are basically just like vessels to kind of reiterate the thoughts that he's going through at the time, mm. sometimes very troubling, unsettling thoughts. I feel there's a real shift in Love and Pop where the shift, and it helps with the shift to live action, whereby the characters feel a little bit more realistic in their portrayal and a bit more three dimensional. And, and if I can use the word empathetic as a result, despite the fact, like you said, the cultural differences and the nature, just the objective nature of some of the things they're doing is very alien to to most of us and and very uncomfortable as well yeah yeah that is the the sort of cultural jump that we have to make you know when watching this and i think also what he does because he obviously he knows what he's doing he's he knows that he's making something which is uncomfortable to sit in so i think it was it's quite an interesting one in terms of like he just uses form as a way to like stimulate you through the story, do you know what I mean? Because I don't think I've ever really yeah. seen a film shot like this, like pure POV of people, yeah. inanimate objects, body parts as well. <laughs> like I've, I've not, not seen that yeah. before. And you know, I'll get into his, his philosophy for the style seems to be: if there's a place I can stick a camera, I'll stick it there. Yeah, yeah. Like there was a bit like <laughs> I think I. I'm, uh, maybe I messaged you this as well, but like I was having to pause it after like ten minutes because it was like it was too much. I was just <laughs> yeah. like, oh my god, this is like so much Kino in my face right now. I need to like, I know, I need to back off a bit. But well, uh, well, what? Just to interject briefly because uh, it's it's 
it, it is this amazing thing of like how the editing is so frenetic and the style is so k- kind of kinetic. It's always on the move. Um, the camera's already been placed in the most like obscure, wild place possible, and then you get these like really quick like elliptical cuts. Mm. Um, that that is present in the animation. Oh, is it? Uh, and it is contrasted. Yeah, absolutely. And it's contrasted in the anime and in this film as well with the kind of uncomfortably long single shots as well where you'll just see one character in the frame another character in the frame you know in relation to Mm. one another and it'll just stay on them for ages i think the one in love and pop is where they change the aspect ratio and she's on the hiromi's on the bridge with the the last guy yes Um, and it's just it just it's still for ages and, and there's loads of that in, in animation. So that you've got this real sense of, I'm I'm shooting in live action so I can go absolutely wild. And you and I did talk about how infectious that is, you mm. know, especially because it's got this kind of gonzo, guerrilla filmmaking, DIY filmmaking vibe through mm. uh, the way it was shot on, you know, the Sony handhelds and and uh, and the camcorders of the time, uh, which is really, you know, exciting and, and gives it that kind of energy and that, that fluidity mm. uh, that you and I both really like about this film. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, 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 do, I do, I just really love the relation it's got to the animation where, um, yes, he's very excited that he's transitioning in terms of format, but he's bringing along a lot of the things that were only really possible in animation and attempting to do them in live action. And I think this film really succeeds for that in creating the effect that you described which is not not many films look like this if any you know no i mean um, and i do, i do, go on i mean the thing that kind of like okay so as someone who has made films and still intends to make more films like i watched this in like quite an inspirational way of like oh this guy's like yeah, totally. gone all out there on this and it's like i've kind of had to like reconfigure how i wanted to do a couple things this year and then I was thinking, like, there are other filmmakers that have watched this, and then they're like, wow, that was really cool. I'm going to go back to doing my two-shot, over-the-shoulder, over-the-shoulder, POV, POV. <laughs> and I think you are the biggest fraud going. Like, any filmmaker who watched this movie, <laughs> right, and then went back to making the most conventional-looking movie going, I, I honestly think that, like, you should have your, like, director's license taken away from you. Like really, like how 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 like you go through life now, just going like through the most mechanical ways of doing things. I'm not necessarily saying you have to make everything look like this because this wouldn't be so special otherwise. The fact is, is that nothing yeah. looks like this, and that's kind of a positive thing. But people who took nothing from this and didn't insert even a little bit of it into their style or thinking is really bleak and depressing, you know. And particularly for like young filmmakers where like they're making stuff kind of you know probably a bit ragged or a bit basic or whatever like i just don't understand how you can take this and not just be completely inspired to do something crazy like this to do something as you know pushing a form like this i mean even in terms of like the insert Mm. shots like yeah you know there's some conventional coverage at points in this but like how he uses inserts particularly of like POVs like when they're in the karaoke booth when you've got the glass and you're looking down him like how people don't mm. well how that is not like a more common trope in cinema is pretty surprising to me because this is like this felt major watching this like you know I I, I, haven't, yeah. I feel like I've not watched that many great films this year but this is would be one of the best I've seen in a very long time. I like movie. that. 
Yeah, yeah. I I think you've articulated that really well, and I think what's what's ex- what's interesting from from my perspective, having not made films mm. and not really having much of an interest in doing it, mm. um, but but getting to know you and, and clearly that clearly that is your background of what you want to do. I I looked at it through that lens, knowing obviously that we would discuss it, mm. and I, I I was then you know by you know vicariously inspired as well, thinking God, yeah, if I you know putting myself in that mindset, God, if I was a a first-time filmmaker or someone who, with an interest in going out there and shooting stuff mm. um, it, within within the confines of a budget and you know all the realities of uh, first time the, you know the first-time filmmakers have to have to kind of confront. If I'd seen Love and Pop, I would be so inspired by the overabundance of energy and ideas and um, that that kind of guerrilla filmmaking that we described. It's like yeah, if we want to put the camera here, we'll fucking put the camera here. I think a lot of my issue with films that have maybe tried to do a similar thing or at least have that kind of like in their mind's eye they think that they're formally inventive which this movie genuinely is mm. um, but they might not be so successful in is that Arno's kind of Arno's doing so much he's operating on so many different levels in terms of the way that like I said he forces the deep introspection with the characters uh, he's dealing with uncomfortable subjects he's mm. or you know he's he's, he's portraying a realistic uh, milieu, despite it being one that he himself admits, you know, he he said one of his main obstacles of making this film was like, well, I've I've not actually been a teenage girl, yeah, <laughs> uh, and he says that with utter sincerity in the making of, yeah, and so funny to me, especially the guy who's come off making the most successful kind of teen anime of its era, mm. um, but yeah, you know, he really wants to empathise with that perspective, uh, but yeah, my point is that I think it's so formally inventive and in a way that's actually uh, composed and considered and formidable because his sense of perspective is brilliant, his sense of composition is fantastic. You know, he's a technically brilliant filmmaker, just very excited by the possibility of filmmaking and then Mm. transitioning into a a medium and a format that he's not worked in before. And that excitement and that kind of uh, vigour that comes from that transition is present across the whole two hours of Love and Pop. Mm. And even though the maybe the promise of a film called Love and Pop, which doesn't contain much love and doesn't contain much pop. No, no it doesn't. <laughs> um, I think the joy that, that that title infers comes almost, well, at least primarily for me through the filmmaking. And I'm, I'm glad that you share that view as well yeah. because it is a film to excite new filmmakers and it is a, and it is a film to excite critics um, who just want to see something that looks like nothing else and and is genuinely invigorated by the idea of making movies you know that 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 kind of trope is is often toted out around uh, citizen kane and the way orson wells made citizen kane mm. and i feel like this is a film that kind of echoes that and achieves that similar that similar inventiveness and and joy and euphoria at exploring a new form mm. um and, and and maybe we can get onto this if we've got time joe but the conch I find the only challenging aspect of the film, and it is deliberately intended as a challenging film, the most challenging aspect of the film is that that joy of the filmmaking that is evident and always present is contrasted with how really troubling some of the scenes are yeah. and how troubling some of the subject matter is as well. Well, I think that's that was the thing I wanted to get onto. I mean, we don't we don't need to go into the specifics yeah. of the two dates that Hiromi has by herself. Uh, because, again, I don't want to spoil it for people, but you should go into this with you know your own... Um, sort of fresh mind of it but i do think he arno is very aware that if he shot this conventionally this film would not have anywhere near the impact or interest or cultural impact 
that it has now. I mean, the fact that this film was released in, what, 1998, and we're talking about it now, this year, 25 years later. Um, well, 26 years later, nearly. But um, but he knows that if he had shot this conventionally, then it would have been a much harder slog to get through. I don't think it would have been as enticing or as interesting. It wouldn't have moved as quickly as well. Because he'll mm. just kind of like end scenes by like cutting to a POV of a person, cutting into the POV of a microphone, and then into another object in another space, and then you're into that world then, and you're into the next scene from there. Like, it moves at such a quick pace yeah. that if he had shot it conventionally, it would not have... It wouldn't have... Um, I don't know, it wouldn't have con- congealed, I don't think. It, it would. Yeah, it, w- it would lose its potency almost entirely. Mm. Um and I, I think if if we're to read into and interpret what his intentions were, I think it's just to give you that almost like documentary style of like the, this is what these girls are living, um, and I and, and I'm I'm doing this kind of heavily stylized, uh, as we described, kind of like really overbearing hyper identify hyper identify identification rather uh, with the characters that is almost masochistic I mean not only masochistic in what they're saying but the way he's kind of forcing you into their perspective and giving them a voice that maybe they wouldn't traditionally articulate mm. in reality so there is a stylized aspect to that um, but it could you know it does reveal some truth some innate truths and it is uh, it is it, you know he is dealing with this en- this uh, this notion this this central idea of Enjo Kasai in a serious way He's not treating it in a frivolous way, and he's certainly not. Even though I would p- potentially say that maybe Anno himself is probably engaged with something similar, mm. uh, but he does give a, a fairly, not even a damning portrayal of it, but just a realistic portrayal of it. How seedy it is, how mm. dangerous it is, and you know some of the some of the crazy characters that we meet in this film really you know showcase that in in quite a, an upsetting way. Yeah, it's um, yeah, I think it's a remarkable movie. Like really really remarkable and um yeah i mean just again speaking from my own perspective i think for any young filmmaker or any any filmmaker of any standing should watch this um you know i i think that this is something it's almost like it's you know you're back to like year zero in a way it's just like okay forget everything you learned before forget everything you know before go to this and then see what you can come up with from there see what you think of from there. You know, I think there are filmmakers now that I think do adhere to these ideas. You know, I'm, I, I quite like the work mm. of um, Eugene Kotlyarenko, the guy who did, like, Wobble Palace. So if you ever saw Wobble Palace or Spree. Yeah. Um, and how he, like, doesn't necessarily shoot coverage in the most conventional way, how he inserts screens into, into his films and whatnot. And, you know, I watched this short film he co-directed with this filmmaker, I forgot the guy's name, I think it was Nate Silver, um... Nate Wilson, sorry, mm. called the Straight Ball, um, that the I think came out earlier this year, um, and again how like vibrant the camera work is in that movie, and also the inserts of screens and different video platforms to sort of tell their story. Uh, again, a very simple one, kind of reminiscent of Love and Pop, um, mm. but yeah, I, I, this is just film is absolutely incredible. I can't say any more. <laughs> profound things about it you, um the the question you've chosen you've chosen it at a good time as well because uh you know in the diehard meme mold that we invoked last week yes it, there it, this is a new year's eve film because is it old lang syne does appear in this film yeah 
that's brilliant. And uh, we'll, listeners, we will get on to maybe a discussion about why Joe chose the two films that he did, although I'm very glad that he did, and that mm. will be very apparent by the end, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but that one stuck out. I was like, hang on a minute, is that old Lang Syne? I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> so officially, Love and Pop is a New Year's Eve film. Okay, <laughs> now we can agree that Love and Pop is a great film. Uh, we're going to say it's a masterpiece, but what level of masterpiece? Is it just a masterpiece? Yeah. Is it a big masterpiece? Is it a super masterpiece? Right. How would you rate, rate this on the masterpiece scale? Yeah, great question. And I think what will be really interesting is now that, and again, giving the listeners a little bit of context, I'm in the process, especially the Anno heads out there, trying to get Joe to watch Evangelion. Um, I know it's shocking that he hasn't. No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, if, if we, <laughs> but there's plenty of. I mean, most of the films that Joe invokes, I haven't seen as well. So we're we're on an even keel. But that is one that I have seen, and I think Joe should watch. But yeah, I I think I think it'd be interesting to revisit this conversation between you and I once you've seen the other Anna works. Okay, but and I, and I share, like I said, I share your kind of excitement and exuberance around the filmmaking aspect of it, which does push it top tier. I'm such an Anno fanboy that he's one of those directors that can pretty much get away with anything as far as I'm concerned. Mm. I'm that much of a fan. Um, I think I treated it as a, not a minor Anno, but certainly not as, I appreciate it a lot more on the re-watching it for this pod because Mm. I do feel like there's a lot in it in terms of the transition from animation into live action and some of the exciting formalism that comes with that. Mm. And and I, I found a lot of the uncomfortable scenes that I struggled with the first time, I found a bit more of an empathy in the way that he portrayed it the second time. And there's there's a lot, it's a lot richer and it's a lot deeper, which to your credit, I think you you, you picked up on straight away. But, you know, for me, I was like, oh, it feels it feels a little bit like a throwaway, Anna. Now I've, I do feel like it's it's a great continuation from his, his masterpiece, End of Evangelion, which takes a lot of the ideas in love and pop and, and pushes them even further. Um, and it's it it, it reigns in a few of them, but it pushes a lot of them in a, in a more interesting direction, and it humanizes a lot of his film, uh, a lot of his kind of uh, consistent and recurrent uh, themes and tropes in a way that I that really resonated with me, with me this time. Um, so I'm going to go just off. I'm, I'll call it a masterpiece or a near masterpiece, Oof. and then I'll ask you the same question. But I think we know the answer for, from your side. It's a big masterpiece for me. This movie, but again, yeah, this is. I've seen, I've seen this and Shin Godzilla. Those are those are the two Arno movies I've seen. Oh, shit. I've, yeah. I've not seen Shin... Have you seen Shin Kamen Rider? What did, you, what did you think of Shin? Did you like Shin? What, Shin Godzilla? Godzilla, rather, because there's a few Shins now. Uh, yeah. Did you like Shin Godzilla? Oh, yeah, I really like Shin Godzilla, but I am... You know, I'm a Godzilla fan. Like, not as hardcore as some, you know, but from the five or six I've seen, I really do love them I think they're even even the crap yeah. parts I think I'm a big fan of how crap some of them are <laughs> yeah um, but Shin Godzilla is just that's why I like Shin Godzilla so much is because it applies that really really formidable Arno formalism yeah. whereby you're getting like this just I mean some of the compositions in that film are unbelievable that's yeah. that's his big budget work that's where he was truly able to make a live action Evangelion in style mm. whereas obviously Love and Pop is very much the opposite it's like reining in a lot of it by you know just doing it all on the, the Sony DV cameras. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's what I love about Shin Godzilla. Is it, it just feels like Anno's given his all the all the playthings and all the tools that he needs to realise um, the more excessive scale-based aspects of his ambition. And you see that in Shin Godzilla. 
but it's probably thematically I know it's a bit of a trite way to look at a Godzilla film but it is probably the least interesting just because it it feels a little bit of an outlier compared to the rest of his work which like I said is all about forcing you into the mind space of some very kind of troubled people have you seen Ritual? I've not okay from the year 2000 should I read you this I've I've never I've not seen this either uh, a disillusioned filmmaker has an encounter with a young girl who has a ritual of repeating tomorrow is my birthday every day. He tries to communicate with her through his video camera. Um, it's on my letterbox watch list, um, but mm. I've not seen this movie. I've, there's some people that have dropped the full five on there, so okay, I'm, I'm enticed by this, but yeah, it came out a couple of years after Love and Pop. Not seen it. Uh, might, might be for a future episode. No. Might be for a future episode. Absolutely. Wait, this is an Arno film, is it, Jack? Yeah. I've blown your mind. There, there is another one where I look. Yeah, I, I mean, you are absolutely. I look back at the filmography, and I was like, yeah, because I've seen Kerkano, <sighs> which is interesting because Kerkano is the sequel to Evangelion from an anime perspective because it's his second like anime series that he was complete creative director for. Right. And Kerkano, which which we could get onto if you if I can ever get you pilled in this direction. <laughs> would be so interesting because that is like the pure teen girl anime and it follows uh, Love and Pop. So a lot of the, there's there's even more richer comparisons with Kekena, but I thought the for the sake of the listeners, Evangelion would probably be a more interesting mm. reference point and for you as well. But yeah, I've not seen Ritual. I didn't, I it stars, even it stars, heard of Ritual. I'm, I'm stunned and shocked. It yeah. stars Sunji Iwai, who is the director of All About Lily Choo Choo. He's oh, interesting. Ah, okay. This is going to be a must. So, this is a must for an episode. The, yeah, let's add that to the list. Sure. There's also an interesting thread that you. I, I, I presume you're a fan of the of the Miyazaki films, the Ghibli. Yeah, films. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. That goes without saying. Yes. So Arno was actually cast, and you'll have to remind me of the name of because it's one of my least favorites. Weirdly, although that might be controversial for some, Anna was the voice actor for. Uh, the protagonist of The Wind Rises, which was supposed to be Miyazaki's uh, swan song. Yes, I mean he's he's had Giro? many swans. Is it Jiro? I don't I don't remember Wind Rises. Yeah, I don't, uh, Wind, yeah. Wind Rises. I, I I my main memory of seeing the, the plane one, the plane one, the airplane one. <laughs> my main memory of seeing The Wind Rises was I saw it in the Curzon Soho. And, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, it was the small screen. And before the film, there was an advert for an Audi uh, where it's, chase, it's chasing after a bus to get people off of it. But because it's got this, um, it's it's like, uh, um, it's kind of showing like the sensor thing, the radar thing. So it won't let you get up close to the car in front of you. So it's just like, oh, this car's so safe, you can't use it in an action movie. That's the joke, right, of the, of the advert. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there was a guy in there who was probably a bit drunk, saw that, and he yelled... That car's crap. It can't even keep up with a bus. And obviously missing the joke of the advert. And it ruined The Wind Rises for me. Because all I was thinking, I was just sat there the whole time stewing, going like, how stupid can you be to not understand that very basic joke? So, um, uh, no, I will say The Wind Rises doesn't stick with me. I know some people say that's the masterpiece, but... Yeah, let's let's be honest. Mononoke. Mononoke is probably... Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we completely see eye to eye. It yeah. is 
clearly Mononoke and any listeners who turn off as a result of that, we don't really want you as fans. Yeah, so. fuck off. Right. Yeah, that's that's what I'm going to say to you. <laughs> um, by the way, if you are a fan of this podcast midway through the officially released second episode, which is titled Episode 1, I've gone for a, a confusing uh, Evangelion-like uh, titling of, uh, of each episode or listing of them, um, you can email us at 10tbharddrivepod at gmail.com um, send us a question and you know what listeners if you send us if we get three emails this week with a question on it on the next episode I will release a clip from the lost pilot episode um, for you to all to enjoy Gareth knows which uh, which <laughs> clip I'm talking about that's right the Dasha Necrosova clip okay so you will get to enjoy that if we get three emailed questions this week so get on it listeners um you can also like and subscribe on all your, your favourite uh, podcast platforms and uh, leave a comment saying how great we are, because we are. move on to the next film which um, I'm going to suggest is a film that you quite like uh, which is uh, Paul Verhoeven's <laughs> Showgirls you asked me earlier what was the link between these two movies uh, why did I come up with this double bill yes. um, I did just felt right I didn't have like a thematic idea and then when I'm watching it I had an idea for what the song that's going to play out at the end of the episode is and the Ooh. the song that I want to play out on is Love is the Drug by Roxy Music. Because I'm like, yes, love oh, is the drug. Banger. Love is the drug of these two movies. Um, you know. Correct. One is cocaine. And then the other one is uh, <laughs> some terrible amphetamine type drug that puts you to sleep. It's, um, yeah. Uh, obviously, this is the cocaine film. Um, Showgirls, directed by Paul Verhoeven. I mean, do I need to tell you the plot? It's, you know pretty basic all about eve in las vegas about nomi yeah. who goes to las vegas become a dancer become a showgirl and things take the obvious turns uh, from there this is a glorious piece of cinema um in which gareth is a humongous fan simple question and an important question when was the first time you watched showgirls and what was the reaction Mm. I feel like with Showgirls discourse, that's always the question. Sorry, I know, I know it's trite, and, and, but I and had what, to. I had to. No, no, not not trite at all. It's. It, I was just about to say. I think it's always the question because the 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 interesting thing about this film is, or one of the more interesting things about this film is how people react to it um, yes. because of how violently negative the reception was when it first came out which everyone knows about mm. i think i think for a certain type of cinephile i hope there's some resonance with these comments listeners um when you first start out and i'm talking like you know early internet you know 10 11 whatever mm. and you're looking at films on rotten tomatoes because you're <laughs> dipping into the dangerous world of film criticism and you and 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 naturally you come across showgirls because 
you know, Paul Verhoeven is a very, very highly regarded, rightly so, mm. uh, auteur whose careers cross between European art cinema and uh, Hollywood blockbuster cinema, which is quite a rarity. Mm. Uh, when Showgirls comes up for the young, nascent cinephile, uh, 19% appears, I think. <laughs> Unless yeah. it's gone up since I looked at it 10 years ago. Um, it is it is one of the most critically reviled films ever made if you take the mainstream uh, perspective, which even though that is uh, channeling a lot of its kind of initial reception or reflecting a lot of its initial reception, mm. um, from a mainstream perspective, hasn't hasn't shifted that much. I mean, the shift has been a wider shift, which you know every you know it's, it's tried to talk about the wider shift. We all know that criticism is now everyone's game as it should be it's been democratized it's been put on the internet and most people with most of a sense of i was going to say good taste then but hmm. that'd be highly inappropriate for a film like showgirls which revels in bad taste hmm. uh, but for most people with an appreciation of film showgirls is now regarded quite highly i would say hmm. um there are some interesting aspects about that um that maybe contradict that that reading uh, or complicate that reading um, but most people think it's good. So, so go, to go back to your question, Joe, when I first saw it, it was probably around 2011, and the so it would have been about 1819. Uh, mm. And the the thing that got me into it was a a film magazine that I was really infatuated with at the time that um, always went against the critical consensus in a way that was that I that I could quite easily unpack as substantial, which was Slant magazine. Oh, of course, um, yes. and Eric Henderson. Yeah, and Eric Henderson had done a review of it um, from 2004, mm. uh, where it's called The Objet d'Art of Its Time, uh, where it's called, in in most, I mean, it's a very balanced review. It doesn't basically just go, oh, everyone who doesn't like showgirls is a fucking idiot and it's a masterpiece. <laughs> it really digs into the complexities of showgirls, which really are the kind of rich substance of why it's an interesting film to talk about and why... I certainly think it's a masterpiece. I think Joe is is close to that view, but you know, I'll I'll let you speak on that. But yeah, I that was the review that kind of turned me on to it, and I already had that contrarian streak in me. You know, I've I've got that in me, that kind of anti-authoritarian. If you say something is this, I want to think it's this. That was always a part of my character, so it found a very natural expression within the you know the highly strung world of film criticism yeah. and a film that not only embodied. Well, yeah, they're not only reflected, but embodied the uh, the whole idea of good versus bad uh, really appealed to me. And we'll go on to discuss this, listeners, but that is probably, and I hope no one views it in this way anymore, that is by far, now I'm you know really Chogirl's pilled, and I've seen it, to Joe's reference earlier, at least six or seven times. Um, that is the least interesting thing about the film, is this binary need to categorize it as either good or bad yeah. um, and I, I will unpack that at some point uh, when, through this discussion but when I first saw it I was I was enamored firstly with the idea of a film like I say that that created such visceral reactions mm. on both sides I was intensely predisposed to support it because not only had I seen other Verhoeven films my dad had introduced me to Robocop so I mean, in a way that critics at the time unbelievably didn't give him any credit. Mm. They just seemed to think, oh, Verhoeven's bad now, you know, which 
I, we can talk about again why that happened but it's ludicrous because if showgirls is anything and it is many things it is a highly formally and technically accomplished film yes. i mean that is absolutely the one irrefutable thing of showgirls in in my mind it's it's actually considerably his most uh, formally accomplished movie and that's primarily where my love of it comes from mm. because the the technique and the style so beautifully uh, works and depicts in in its in its style for style's sake, but also in its depiction of the world it's trying to critique. Mm. Um, and then yeah, I just became obsessed with the kind of luridness of it and the languidness of it and the and how uh, how violent it is in the sense of its you know its humor and its critique. Mm. It's got a real sense of realism and an empathy for some quite dodgy characters, but it. It's it, it's very clear for most people, I think, on the first viewing that this film pulls absolutely no punches in terms of who its targets are, who it wants to laugh at, who it wants to make a point about, mm. um, you know, namely the Vegas machine and also uh, typical Hollywood A Star Is Born narratives, which yeah. is highly uh, derisive of and dismissive of. Mm. Um, and all of these things were quite clear to me on first watch in a way that wasn't facile. It wasn't just like... Because there have been times in my cinephilia where I've thought, I'll like this film more than maybe I should because I want to. And that might have been more of an unconscious process than that indicates, but not with Showgirls. I, I now get to... I'm certainly at the point now where I watch Showgirls, I'm like, how can you not at least find a lot to love in this film? Yes. I mean, there is, there is so much that it does right in terms of its critique and its narrative and its characterization and its style primarily, I suppose. Mm. Um, and f- and and from there on, I became obsessed. And it's not a film that is. Um, it, it is a film that can be en- enjoyed ironically, but we'll get to this. There's a point in this film where it very much the camp enjoyment of this film stops. Yeah. And I would love to unpack that with you. But I guess I'll just throw the question back at you, Joe. Is when did you first see it? And did you have, for similar or, or non-similar reasons, the same kind of? visceral love and, and passion for it that I that I could have yeah. espoused I mean the first time I watched it was maybe two years ago and I had sort of like I held off on watching it because I think with certain films you have to have had certain life experiences to really appreciate it I think I've, I, honestly I can't remember mm. who I've said this to in the past or if it was on the podcast last week but I think Michelangelo Antonioni is only worthwhile once you've had two or three terrible relationships like that is there's no to me there's yeah. no value there to watch his films until that moment and i love that observation yeah yeah, right. yeah with showgirls i watched it you know knowing the reaction to it and by the way because you know of the rate of inflation the uh, tomato meter is now inflated to 23 <laughs> percent uh, but the oh get it yeah come on but the audience score is thirty seven percent so this idea that audiences have turned completely in favour of this is maybe not quite there but then also think of the mouth breathers that are on Rotten Tomatoes so I'm not really going to <laughs> not really going to give that too much credit Showgirls is like fascinating to me as a movie because you know it's it's a trite point. But I think it's fair is that people saw Total Recall, Robocop, Basic Instinct, and they always had the knives out for Verhoeven because it was just like he was so like rubbing it in people's faces. You know, he was successful. Oh, people massive. said people said Basic Instinct was a bad movie. Basic Instinct is one of the best films ever made, and I'm not being ironic with that. It's incredible. Okay, 
Michael Douglas in a deep V sweater with nothing underneath is one of the most enticing images you're ever going to see. Now, let's yeah. now let's <laughs> back onto Showgirls, and they go like, he's a great satirist. You know, if you watch RoboCop, he's a great satirist. He's a great, this great satirist, and suddenly when he makes Showgirls, he's no longer a satirist. Like, there's mm. this thing of like, I'm not going to give him the credit because this guy's successful. And we don't want him to be successful, but he keeps being it. And they, he finally messes up in their eyes. And so now they can start, like, digging him out. And it's just completely invalid. Completely invalid. And do you know what it is? Is that people watch this film, and the main thing that they latch onto is Elizabeth Berkeley. Now, if you mm. think Elizabeth Berkeley gives a good or, or bad performance in this, is kind of irrelevant. She gives like it is. one of the most performances in that she is so hyper in this movie that I think, yeah, it can tip into the balance of whether you think it's good or not. And I think that people just latched onto that. And I think also the amount of nudity as well is something that upsets a lot of people. Yeah. The fact is, yeah. is that there's a lot of nudity in it from minute one, and he's doing that so that you're numb to it, so that you forget about it. Because by the end of it, absolutely, you're like... Because when I first watched it, I'm like, oh my lord, like, this is a lot of nudity. And then by the end of it, when you yeah. have that you know, sex scene in the pool that people mock, whatever, you know, yeah. like, it's kind of irrelevant at that point, the nudity. You're, just... you're, you're right, you, you, you have to be numb to it in the way that the, that the characters, the monsters who yes. um, perpetuate this Vegas machine are numb to it. That's the intended effect, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You're supposed to be numb to it in the way that they are because, you know, it's just piece of flesh at the end of the day and that yeah. that piece of flesh has got a higher ranking than you so you're going to push them down the stairs so that you can get to that spot as well like that's just how <laughs> it works that's just how it works and they know it and they're fine with it you know um yeah just bizarre what the reaction is to it but let's go on to mm, berkeley because i i think berkeley is the best way to, to look at this in terms of the performances is that people yeah, people say that she's over the top or bad in this whatever else i think she is bad uh, but her badness is actually good yeah. in the sense of not of ironic of like the setting she is not refined she is not part of the machine she has not been ground down by the vegas show machine so she doesn't know how to behave whereas everyone else there kind of is slick and is kind of like well oiled and you know perfectly formed for that machine and then she comes in as an outsider and she doesn't act that way so she stands out more because of that I think that that is what that performance is is someone actually playing the character kind of perfectly like I think that that is a perfect performance Mm. for it even if you could say technically it's not a great performance Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, I, don't, I don't feel. I mean, I, you might be different, Joe, but I, I. It's so rare for me to ever view a film or derive any kind of intellectual appreciation for a film based on the uh, so-called objective quality of its performances. Yeah, same. Um, and I've, I've, I've never thought in those terms. Um, so it, it was quite easy for me to accept the performance for what it for what it yeah. is. Um, which I think I, I don't need to rehash. I think you've described it well. By the way, there are times when it's very. By the by the way, if we did value all films in that regard, then wouldn't the King's Speech be the greatest film of all time? Like, but it very much is not. <laughs> which is a horrifying reality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Sorry. Yeah, of course. 
No, no, not at all. And I, I'm with you. I, and I'm not trying to make this as like some kind of like pretentious uh, like statement in terms of like, oh, well, you know, there's no value in a good performance. Of course there is. Yes. But I, I would never... I would never, and, and look, Joe and I, Joe's invoked it already. There's a performance on a technical level, which maybe even supersedes the technical that him and I discussed in our Lost Pilot episode <laughs> around Dracula, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, um, of such a, a level of infamy and, and incompetence um, that, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really mind if people said that that kind of inhibits their enjoyment of the film. But the difference with Berkeley's performance for me in this is um, a point that um, staunch um, Showgirls defender and brilliant critic in his own right, Adam Neyman, uh, makes in his book, Showgirls Doesn't Suck, um, which is a, is a great book. Mm. And the title is a reference to a line that um, Nomi says a lot. <laughs> yes. Anything she loves in the film doesn't suck. Um, which is yeah, a fun little quirk of Joe Esterhaus's script. Mm. Um, yeah, so Naaman makes the point, and I think it's a really salient one, and I think it's beautifully articulated in the book that um, Berkeley's performance becomes an allegory for the film itself, mm. which is the way that Verhoeven, as this kind of voyeuristic, uh, egotistical director, wanted to put his lead actress through the ringer so that her performance would reflect. Uh, the reality of a real-life Vegas showgirl mm. dancer being put through the ringer. Um, and, you know, whatever means he used to elicit that performance, um, you know, some of which we can... We would we would criticise even by the standards of, of the time it was made, let alone today. Mm. Um, which, which, to be fair, you know, I'll give Verhoeven his dues. No one really knows the specifics of. So I'm not going to, you know, say, oh, you know, it's not like a Kubrick shining incident with um Shelley uh, Duvall what's her name who plays the yeah Shelley Duvall where you where that that documentary is out there and you can see the obese happening but you know the indications is that maybe it is anyway it's kind of irrelevant to Neyman's point Neyman's point is that the act the that Berkeley's performance is so essential to why the film works mm. because it functions as an allegory of the film because Verhoeven is essentially putting her into these situations where she feels uncomfortable uh not not good enough um, a fish out of water, which is exactly how Nomi feels in the narrative of Showgirls and, and in the story that, that Joe Esterhaus has, has written. And that's why the performance works. And and I don't want to rehash all the ideas of, of Naaman because I would recommend everyone goes to re read his book. But when we're talking about the Berkeley performance, he really makes some, some really great points, I think. And he says... He gives a thought experiment, which which might be interesting to the listeners, which is that had you put Angelica Silverstone in the role... Um, Alicia Silverstone. ...who'd come off of Clueless... Uh, Alicia Silverstone, sorry, yeah. Um, Alicia Silverstone in the role who, you know, as he argues, is a very adept, very competent comedienne mm. um, who had made a film, um, at least in that year, around the same time in Clueless, where she absolutely fucking kills. Mm. You put her in Showgirls, and she then echoes or is completely aligned with the comedic the obviously jocular satirical elements of uh, the showgirl script and she just matches that point for point would showgirl still have the same level of resonance and he argues that it wouldn't no and i i would agree because a lot of what does make the film good is her kind of 
her performance being so alien. Mm. I mean, people would, it's so trite for me to make these observations as, as the people did at the time and as people still do now, where they say, oh my God, look at her flailing around like a fish in the sex scene. Look at her chewing that burger like no one's ever eaten a burger before. You know, all these kind of observations about how weird her performance is. But for me, that does enrich it because she she genuinely doesn't give a kind of performance that I've seen before. It's in, It's kind of, yes, objectively incompetent. It's over the top. It's a little bit like a deer caught in the headlights. Yeah. But that is perfect for what that character is but also, in that moment. She doesn't come from like a refined place. She's not like she's and that. yeah. So like she's like, Oh look how she's eating yeah. that burger. I was just like, This is probably a person who's probably like at points gone days without food. Great point. Like and is maybe yeah. not always have the best table manners. I mean Jesus, exactly. Jesus Christ, like that. that that's got. And when, when, we, when we learn, when when we learn of her past as well. Sorry to interrupt you. No, but yeah, on. when we, you're absolutely right. When we learn of her past at the end, um, you know, where it, it doesn't really add anything to the story, and this is why, you know, it, it's not a perfect movie. But that scene where um, Zach Cole McLaughlin's character starts saying, like, you know, I found your record. Like, I know what you've mm. been in a past life, and. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting scene because it doesn't it doesn't really add much to the overall impact of the film. No, but it but it it shows that like this is it, it, it at least gives an illustration to the fact that this film is clearly an indictment of of the American dream of the a star is born narratives within Hollywood. the way Hollywood tries to repackage itself mm. and sell it back to people the idea that anyone can be a star mm. and obviously the ending of that is very, is very pertinent towards that point because it's um, she's off to Hollywood to do it all over again exactly. when you see the the last um, yeah the uh, Los Angeles sign, sign. yeah um, that's, that's, yeah that's, the LA sign that's at the, the end that's the other thing that, that gets me about this is that again it goes back to that thing of like you it can say that Verhoeven's a satirist when it comes to Robocop because it's quite obvious, you know. But when it's yeah. showgirls and because it is the entertainment industry and he's basically giving them the finger back to them after they, they've given him millions to make a huge movie mm, in Las Vegas, like, yeah. yeah, they probably might have had their knives out for him at that stage. There's also a thing that you said about the... Um, Great point. Yeah, her movements. Sorry, her movements they go on to. You have to think that this person, she's basically a worker in every sense. Like, she's almost like a pro wrestler in terms of, like, I have to sell you something constantly. Yeah. Like, I have to lead, lead this line and this machine. But ultimately, that machine is lying back to her, where they say, like, oh, we care about your talent and all that. And then you see the assault that happens to her friend. And that is the, the, oh, that is the crux thing for me for viewer reaction, is that you have people that hate oh, it. Thank you. I'm glad you said that. You have people who hate it, and they can hate it because of that scene. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. I totally yeah. get it. I would understand why someone would hate that in this movie, and why they would dislike the movie from that. The people that watch the movie and watch it ironically and laugh along with it and have a tr- yes, you are. If you are saying that you are watching it through that, and that is the only way you can enjoy it, that means you're skipping over that scene. It means you're switching off, oh, and you're basically not watching the last fifteen minutes because that is. Yeah. Like almost the crux of the film is the reaction to that moment. How you react to that as a viewer. I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way to watch a film, yeah. but there's a, a way to react to this film to whether you are legitimately with it or not. And for me, that scene 100%. is one of the most. It's a gut wrenching moment. It's brutal. It's disgusting. It's horrible. Awful. Awful. It's awful. Yeah, it is. And it's 
the important scene of whether you were going to go with it entirely because it's easy to go with it when they're when they're crazy and they're doing the dance scenes and you know oh <laughs> yeah. she pushes her down the stairs and the Gina Gershon just looks amazing in the lap dance sequence and the you know and all that it's easy to enjoy that movie it's easy. I love Doggy Chow too yeah exactly yeah. It's, that's easy that's yeah. easy it's hard to love this movie I mean you, you, you're absolutely hit the nail on the head I I wouldn't call it a beef yeah but it could develop into one but I've had sure. a I, I there's a critic there's a critic on letterbox that I, I really respect um, especially in the games in the medium of games um trans woman called Merit and she's brilliant she's I think she's developed a few games herself mm. and she loves the film and gave it a four star review said it was a perfect movie mm. and then put a in what I would interpret as a facetious comment by saying that apart from the pointless scene at the end it's a perfect movie and, and you know straight away I'm like no no that's that is the scene and I'm really glad that you know we're on the same page because you know for listeners context uh, Joe and I have not discussed it pre- prior to this mm. But we are completely on the same page because that is the key scene. Um, if if you enjoy it from a campy, ironic perspective, so you like the almost like the so bad it's good. If you're feeding into kind of that um, way of viewing the film, uh, then that scene becomes a, a big issue and problem problematizes your your perception of it and your reading of it and your enjoyment of it. Um, but if you're in tune with the, what the film is actually doing. Which is, and what that scene more specifically is doing, which is, okay, like we have to show how dark the underbelly, mm. well, not even the underbelly, the overbelly yeah. of this world is. Um, you have to take that scene at face value, uh, which is exactly as Verhoeven pretended, intended, rather, uh, which is uh, horrific and really dark. Um, there's a there's a line that comes off the back of that that awful <laughs> scene, and I'm saying an awful <laughs> scene because it's awful to see what's depicted mm. the scene itself as as we're arguing is key um but there's there's a scene afterwards where they're in the hospital and for the first time zach um carl mclaughlin's character gets really violent with naomi mm. and he's like you don't realize we're all part of a team yeah, yeah like you know andrew carver the guy who's you know just <laughs> the only moral character in the film by the way mm. there is every single character in showgirls is morally compromised and and you know, there's a guy that there's obviously the dance teacher, for example, mm. um, who you think is going to be Nomi's salvation, her kind of root out of it, because he's more of an artist. He's more fo- fixated on, um, you know, dancing as a medium. Mm. And then he turns out to be a scumbag because, you know, he's running the same routine that he runs on her with another one of the dancers at the cheater club mm. and ends up, you know, cheating on the idea of him and Nomi being together with, with the other girl, Polly. Mm. So the only moral character in the film is the one who is punished. And that is really indicative for me of Verhoeven's really twisted, like, dark sense of humour. But it's also indicative and reflective of the fact that Verhoeven really wants you to feel that scene. He doesn't want to just toss it off like Merritt argues on Letterboxd or other people maybe have if they're taking a more of a campy, ironic enjoyment of the film for all its kind of surface-level badness Mm. or, or, or things that it certainly does in bad taste. That that he's literally taking the one character who is good in the film and brutalizing her and and making her the victim of this horrible, <laughs> so that he can show how how bad it is. And go go back to what I was saying just briefly about Zach. He has this line where he says, uh, "We're all part of a team, honey. Like you've you've got to be part of the team." And then Nomi has a choice. Then doesn't she? She can either go along with it, be part of the Vegas machine mm. that she's had to you know beg, steal, and borrow and 
you know, overcome her rival form, manipulate people, including Molly herself, who she who she lies to about her her pushing of uh, of Gina Gershon's character to get to where she got to get to that zenith to get to the top. Mm. Um, you know, she's got a choice then. She can either she can either go along with it and not report it to re- the police, which is something she chooses to do. Um, or you know, or, or reap the rewards of the fame and glory that overlooking this awful mm. would mean for her, and th- and thankfully, you know, Verhoeven and Esterhaus are smart enough to give her that you know classic revenge scene mm. where she goes back and you know kicks the fuck out of him, which you know is is very satisfying on every level. Um, but it's, I mean, I think I think the. The thing that, I, that might be one of the problems with it, or or at least the issues that I can see where where maybe it's detractors and maybe right. That's maybe too neat of a yeah. of an ending. If they really are going for this kind of like acidic, uh, acerbic, on point critique of that Las Vegas like machine, mm. um, then having it just be like, oh, within one scene she's got her revenge, she's beat the shit out of him. And now she's off again. You know, might be construed as a little bit too neat. Like I said, I do think the the Hollywood, the subversion of her going back to Hollywood mm. makes it work for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think the important thing is is knowing that that scene is absolutely crucial to the critique that the film mounts, mm. rather than just some uh, shock tactics stuck on ending that should that that you know horrifies people because Verhoeven's a a master of just shocking for the sake of it. Mm. I really do think, as you as you've articulated, Joe, that it's part and parcel with you know the 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 way that the film is operating and the level that the film's operating. I mean, let's talk about also the craft of this movie. Yeah. I mean, nineteen ninety five oh, Las stuff. Vegas movie with infinite style, Martin Scorsese's Casino, the colours, uh, as well as <laughs> as well as thought Sh- of Casino, a lot, yeah, yeah, as well as Shogas. I mean, obviously the Scorsese one is different in terms of like montage and music and how he uses that. But the uh, we'll touch on it briefly here. But the Steadicam work in this movie is some of the best in any Verhoeven movie. You know the framing mm, of how he uses is. them. You know, and actually, if you think about it, just the so many over elaborate shots, aren't there? Just every shot seems to be almost unnecessarily stylized yes. and overly elaborate. Like you've got these cameras coming in from like the roof of the clubs, and then when they're in the club, it's like one unbroken take. Yes, and then it's shooting. You know, it's shooting them, and they're moving around, and you just think, God, how difficult must this have been yes. to actually film? Yeah, like, th- and the formalism that he pours into every frame of every sequence is just really remarkable mm. like we said before that's the one aspect that I don't think anyone can really argue with about this film being good like the scene when she's performing in The Cheetah and um, Karl McLaughlin and um, Gina Gershon are there and she then goes onto the floor and like she sees them walks back to avoid them but the frame it's all done in one shot of her coming off down coming back across talking to some guys getting beckoned back over to them the amount of extras in that shot, the amount, the depth of action happening in the background as well, the movement yeah. as well going through there—it's absolutely superb. I mean, it's all of the all of the dance sequences as well, Joe. Incredible. Like how complex the choreography is in terms of like they've got like that one where the volcano is blowing up in the background, the one yeah. where they're in that kind of like cyberpunk world, and there's like motorbikes like crossing across yeah. the stage. Do you know- Everything is just really done to excess to really kind of capture that world. Do you know what? Um, this will be my, like my last point. It's a bit of a glib one, but I don't even understand what this show is. 
that they're doing? Like, is it kind of just like the most <laughs> elaborate, classy strip show ever? Like, that's what it is. Yes, I, I like that's the yeah. Show. I think I think the only point that Esther House and Verhoeven are making is like there's a there's a hierarchy, isn't there? Yes, it's like. You're either unemployed, you're working at the Cheetah, yeah. <laughs> where you're basically the understudy for a woman whose you know, most famous line is, you were the only one who were able to get my tits out mm. properly, honey. Or pop my tits in the right way. Yeah. Um, who is, yeah, definitely the the real <laughs> rogue element of this film <laughs> that all the drag queens love to impersonate because, yeah, such a fun character, but, yeah, full of absolute vulgarity. Um, so, yeah, there's a hierarchy of, of uh, unemployed, the Cheetah, and then the Valhalla is uh, working a real show. But they, they do kind of unpack that or under, undermine that, don't they? Where Do you remember that scene where Robert Duvall's character and that um, and that woman's character come back and they're like, they're like, uh, must be... Must, yes! Must be, uh, must, must, must be difficult doing a show where you, like, you don't finish with the calm all over you, basically. Rob, Robert David. And like, even when Robert Nomi... David, e- so even when Nomi reaches, like, yeah, yeah, that's it. So even when Nomi like reaches like the upper mm. echelons of like naked dancing, she's still being reminded of like how essentially, you know, it is selling of sex and it is still like this whorish pursuit. Yeah. Which she's, constantly like derided for you know her naivety of thinking that she's doing something that is akin to actual performance art and dancing is constantly being undermined by every single character in the film whether they're an ally to her or you know someone who's trying to exploit her let's um actually one last thing i want to mention about that line because people make point out that line and say like oh isn't that a hilarious ridiculous line no that's a perfect example of the confidence in which the men who work in that area are able to speak to women so freely that it's been set up that is like they can just say this crazy stuff to them and then there's no consequences and then they just get on with their day they don't have to think about that whereas Nomi has to think like god almighty I have to think on what he's just said to me brilliant the last thing I'm going to mention is that basically what me and you have done is we've just recreated you know 3.30 in the morning in a Shoreditch kitchen doing cocaine uh, on a podcast for people you know, <laughs> screaming about showgirls. Um, do, do, do you know what? Do you know what this also reminds me? Not my first time, mate. Not, not my, <laughs> my first rodeo. I have to say, I just, I, I just have like this memory of just like yelling at some guy about the prequels, just like how great they are. And it's just, I didn't, didn't even like those movies. Um, do you know? Also, I was thinking about. Do you, have you ever seen the film Eden, the Mia Hansen love film about? I love that movie. Yeah, the, the showgirl soundtrack scene. is still on my Spotify. Yes, same. The yeah, showgirl yeah. scene. Yeah, he says, "Does he? Showgirls is a masterpiece." Yes. That's and then, actually, like, oh, a line that she puts do in. Do we have to watch mouth. this again? Like we've seen it already. Like it's just like, yeah, I've seen it before. It's fine. It's just like, no, it's a masterpiece. That is a great scene to show what being a cinephile is. That is, that is, you've made you've made a life choice, right? And your life choice is to cut yourself off from 99% of the opposite sex. Like, you've decided, I'm going to be this person. This is what I've ruined my life with. Hey, I'll just have to get on with it. Uh, let's, I mean, where do we rank? Absolutely. Let's rank this in the in Verhoeven's filmography. I don't want to go all of cinema. Oh, okay. We'll wrap this up here with yeah. just ranking this in terms of Verhoeven. Um, and then we'll do a bit of any other business. Yeah. Um, I mean, sure, is this the number sure. one Verhoeven film for you? Uh, yeah yeah it is um so so there's two there's two kind of ways that i view this um i and and listeners and joe and i have discussed this previously is that we haven't actually seen have we joe 
a lot of his, if not any of his <laughs> uh, no, Dutch works, no. his his, um, his European films. So apart this from... is primarily based on the on the Hollywood works. But but to be fair, I think there's more of a consensus on the Hollywood works, not only being a continuation of the work that he was doing in Holland, but doing it in a context which made it really radical and doing it with high budgets and, and you know, big well-known actors and things like that. So I, I do think even the Verhoeven heads do consider the Hollywood period to be his kind of richest artistic period. Mm. So for us to rank it within that um, is is fine, I think. Um, I would I would say, I would say, yeah, it's quite clearly number one. Um, if a lot of the enjoyment or substance of the other ones is based on the satirical, acidic uh, nature of them mm. and how they kind of hold up American society and not just reflect it back to the audience, but like shove it down their throat and say, this is how fucking awful you lot all are, mm. which is pretty much the kind of mission statement and raison d'etre for, for all of Verhoeven's films. Mm. I think Showgirls does it most elegantly if anything about Showgirls can be described as elegant, mm. I think it's it's that it's that critique of America. Uh, formally, I think it's its most accomplished. Uh, yes, a lot of the humour can be a bit puerile at times, but I think it's always in service of characters. I think a lot of this the the, the humour in like RoboCop and in other films that he made, Total Recall, uh, Basic Instinct, it it doesn't feel quite as connected to Verhoeven. Verhoeven himself almost takes. He's he's absolutely in control of the style, mm. but the screenwriters are more in control of like the points being made. Mm. I think Showgirls is the real synthesis, the real synergy, whereby the director is fully in control. He's found a script that really says everything he wants to say mm. about this subject, and it really reflects how kind of wild and erratic and voyeuristic his style of working is. And that kind of the synthesis of that and the harmony of that. Along with, like we said, the more kind of like component parts, like the technical aspects and how well scored, edited, shot this film is, the mise en scène, mm. the the look of it is. It, I do, do think it's a cut above. And then finally, you know, to end this exhaustive point is I just think Showgirls is such an interesting film to talk about as a cinephile yeah. um, in a way that I don't find the other ones quite as rich to talk about. And I know that shouldn't really have a bearing on what my rating of the film is, uh, but it it does feed into why I'm so drawn to the film and why I'm so obsessed with it and why I like to revisit it because there are so many layers and dimensions and lenses with which you can view it. So I'm going to put it at the absolute top tier of his work. Excellent. Um, yeah, it's the same for me. I'm not going to explain it. We've just spoken for about half an hour on the movie. And if you didn't get that from what I've just said... <laughs> Uh, Hollow Man, a close number two. No, it's not. Um, let's. <laughs> let's. Uh, he's lying. He's lying. No, he's, indeed. <laughs> right. Let's wrap up. Any other business? Is anything else you've been ingesting? You want to go over? Um. Yeah, may, maybe a little bit. Um. So, well, there's there's two fold. I've been I've been watching a show that I'm I'm really a big fan of, but I will save this for the end of year roundup because Ooh. I think it if it will Don't feature very heavily and prominently in that. Yeah, it's going to be The Curse by Nathan Fielder and Benny Safdie, uh, which I'm really, really taken with. Okay. And I hope you and I can have some good conversations about that going forward. So all I'll say, if this does make the final edit, is that listeners, get out there and watch The Curse because you won't be disappointed. Okay. Um, and I'm also very excited for you and I to discuss probably my favourite work across film, TV, any medium, 
which is Twin Peaks The Return, which you haven't seen yet. So I'm really looking forward to you watching okay. that. I'll rewatch it alongside, and then I'm sure we can create an episode up. March, March. Because, yeah, Let's, that's that's always on my radar. Oh, yes, March. Let's yeah, aim for March. Let's aim for March. Um, I've just been rewatching. How, how about you, Joe? Anything on your radar? Uh, I've just been rewatching the Lord of the Rings films, and it's kind of depressing watching. Um, I saw. Yeah, I was, it's kind of depressing watching these movies. I, Will Sloan said this on, on Letterboxd. It's depressing to see a film where there's a sequence set in the woods, and then I'm amazed that there's actual real trees in there. Like, that's, that's yes. the level. Of, <laughs> so, yeah. Again, that's where we're at. Yeah. Beautiful movies, perfectly cast. Incredible to look at. What what else can I say about it? Um, listeners, thank you. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us on our Twitters. That's in the bios below. Again, email 10TB uh, hard drive pod at gmail.com. Three questions and you get the you unlock the Dasha Necrosova clip for all you perverts out there. And um, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week to wrap up the year twenty twenty three. Um a pleasure as per usual. Nothing, nothing more to say Joe it's been real yeah it has been real indeed and thank uh, you very much Showgirls what a film uh, right I'm going to stop recording there. happy new year and, oh yeah happy new year to everyone god bless